please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 51, verse 1 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I have brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my, in my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy in your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. This is the word of the, of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah? Testing, one, two, three. One, two, three, no? Let me check if I'm on. All right, there I go, okay. All right, well, good morning. My name is Daniel, and I am super excited that we're here under the tent. It feels like spring. Uh, spring is already here. Um, thankful for that uh, this morning as well. I have the privilege this morning of, uh, of leading us in our time of, uh, of preaching. But before I do that, uh, there are kids' activity pages up in the front. So I'm going to talk really slow and have kids come up and grab one of these clipboards and follow along with us. It's good to see so many kids. Don't realize even how many kids there are until they come out of the woodworks. They're, uh, 
in between the trees, I think, and then I think they pop up and, and come out to the front. And so thankful to have kids with us this morning. One of the most difficult words to say, not because it's complicated and not because it's difficult to pronounce, but because it's an admittance of wrongdoing. Can you guess what it is? It's five letters long. Yeah. It's the word sorry. And then add to that, I'm sorry. It makes it even more difficult to say. As I was preparing my sermon this week, I struggled greatly coming up with a good sermon introduction. One where I could confess a time in my life I hurt someone or committed a wrong and then came clean and then apologized and everything was good. Well, don't get me wrong, I, it wasn't a struggle because I couldn't think of one. Trust me, there were many to choose from. But I struggled for a number of different reasons. For one, I struggled because I was trying to think of a story that painted me in the best lights. One that didn't make me look too bad. Or one that actually made me look good. I struggled when I thought of that one moment. And then I realized, nope, I never said it. I never apologized. And then another time. Yeah, I said it, but I still thought I was right. Or that other time when I said it, but I didn't mean it. Or how about that one time I thought, why do I need to say it? And why does it bother the other person so much? when it seems like it wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe the other person was just being too sensitive. I struggled because sharing a real confession story is saying I'm sorry twice. Once in that moment and another now in front of all of you. And to be honest, that's too much for my ego to handle. A real I'm sorry story is too painful to share. You get to see me as I really am. I've messed up a million times, more than I can count, and I've had my fair share of apologizing that I've had to do. You know, it's easy saying I'm sorry when I accidentally bump into a stranger on the street or to say sorry when I cut someone off accidentally at a coffee shop or to say I'm sorry to express sympathy for another's sadness or unpleasant news. But it's not as easy when you have to apologize for something that you did to offend or hurt someone and I confess that I'm not good at confessing. King David, the second king of Israel, had committed a grave sin. He committed adultery and then murder 
And then for a year, he had thought he had gotten away with it. It seems like whatever a king wants, a king gets, doesn't it? That's why they call him king. And in that day and in that time, it shouldn't have seemed like a big deal, but that's what kings do. They do whatever they want. And they get away with whatever sin they committed. And as strange as it is, it still happens today. Getting away with all sorts of evil. We're not surprised when we hear about presidents or prime ministers or monarchs. You hear about people in positions of power getting away with all kinds of evil. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And when we hear of it, we're not shocked by these stories. And King David is one of those, commits adultery, and then commits murder. And this particular king finds out the hard way that those things that we try to keep in the dark has a way of finding the light. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light, but here the sin committed in secret is found out. The prophet Nathan confronts David about his wrongdoing and rebukes him of his sin. And what we find uh, penned in the book of Psalms, especially chapter 51, are the words of David's confession, his apology letter. Over the next 40 days of Lent, we'll be looking at spiritual practices that draw us into an intentional pursuit of Christ. Last week, Brad preached on prayer and shared the parable of the judge and the persistent widow. I know he confessed to you that he's not a good bowler. And I just want it to be known, I'm awesome at it. I bowl pretty close to 300 on the Wii. Yes, I am terrible at real bowling. But these spiritual practices, something we call the spiritual disciplines, are there to draw us closer to the heart of Christ. If I can, I know some have used spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices to say that I'm a better Christian. I'm a better person. But I don't think that's what these disciplines are all about. These spiritual practices called the spiritual disciplines are not about becoming a better Christian. I have often found in these practices how much further I need to go how much more I need to grow in my pursuits of Christ. So the question is, what are these disciplines all about? Dallas Willard, an author and theologian, one of the premier writers on the spiritual disciplines, defines it this way. He says, the spirit of the disciplines is nothing but the love of Jesus with its resolute will to be like him whom we love. Another author, John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, defines it similarly when he writes, spiritual discipline, any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. Let me give you one more definition. One I think best describes and defines spiritual discipline, a spiritual discipline, when practiced faithfully and regularly, is a habit or regular pattern in your life that repeatedly brings you back to God. 
and opens you up to what God is saying to you. Before we had cable television in my home, we had rabbit ears. Some of you who are old enough know what those are. You put these antennas on your TV. Some of us still do, and that's okay. We have them in our house. Uh, they're tucked away for those rainy days, but uh, it's, it's plugged in, uh, or it's not plugged in now, but it used to be plugged into our TV. And uh, the, the antennas would need to be turned and twisted each way to figure out how to get the best signal. And when the kids were younger, I would have them stand and hold it. And then when it was just right, I'd say, just stay there so I can watch the Dodgers play on TV. You know, I think the spiritual disciplines are like that. It's not practices that make us better people. These are not disciplines that make us better Christians. But much like the antenna, it's about aligning our heart to be able to better receive God's word. To be able to better hear God's voice. The spiritual disciplines are really all about how do I know God more? How do I love Christ better? How do I hear what he has to say? These are spiritual disciplines. It's about the positioning of oneself and realigning the heart to be able to hear what God is saying, drowning out the noises, drowning out all the encumbrances and all the obstacles and all those things that get in the way of our worship of God and saying, Help me to get rid of clutter and noise that so can hear God better. So we're calling this sermon series Intentional Pursuits because that's our desire, that the spiritual disciplines would aid us to better attune our hearts to the passion of Christ's heart. Psalm 51 are the words of David's confession, his apology letter, he admitted how badly he had done wrong and sat down and wrote the words of this poem. 3,000 years later, we come back to it again and again because it tells us what it means to come back to God when we have sinned. And this discipline, which we don't think of as a discipline, but the discipline of confession is about aligning our hearts and saying, Lord, help me to get rid of. Help me to declutter. God, help me to have a right heart before you. So I can obey what you say. The first six verses of Psalm 51 serve particularly as David's confession. He begins with God. He cries out to God for his mercy, for his love, and for his compassion. In verse 1, it says, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Lord, according to the basis of your love, your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions and wash away my iniquity. He appeals to the nature of God as the grounds for his forgiveness. Lord, because you are full of compassion. Lord, because you are slow to anger. Lord, because you are gracious and merciful. Lord, because you are the covenant God who's, who keeps his covenant promises. Lord, as much as you are just, Lord, be merciful. Show favor upon us is the sinner's plea. 
One of my favorite paintings, maybe a close second behind uh, Laurie Freeman Young's work. One of my favorite uh, artists is a Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. There are several in the scene, but it really, really uh, depicts three. Of course, from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In the story, the son who has spent his inheritance on wild living returns, kneeling before his father. And in the painting, this prodigal has only one shoe. His clothes are tattered and worn. He's filthy. His father and brother, by contrast, are standing over him dressed in fine clothing. And it's clear the man on his knees is a wretched specimen of a human being and perhaps nothing in common with those around him. And yet Rembrandt, following Jesus' parable, pictures the father nevertheless bending over his son regardless of his filth, unconcerned about the differences in positions and holds this son close to his heart. The son's eyes are closed. You can see it as his head is turned. And as he burrows his head on his father's breast, it's an amazing painting, but more so, it's an amazing picture of the steadfast love and of the abundant mercy of God. The prodigal comes to the father not on any merits or good standing, but, and not by his obedience or even of his love for the father, but simply on the basis of mercy. The prodigal son is a lot like David, the psalmist in Psalm 51. He comes to God and says, God, give me one more chance. God, you know my record. God, you know you've called me a man after your own heart. God, you know that I'm nothing like Saul, the previous king. And David could have made all sorts of excuses. In a moment of weakness, God, I fell. He could have very well said, Lord, I'm not going to do it anymore. But he doesn't. He appeals to God on the basis of God's mercy, and that's it. Lord, because of your abundant grace and Lord, because of your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. There are no excuses. All the evidence convicts me. And yet David says, this is an argument I can make before God. I can't argue on the facts of the case. I cannot argue on the evidence against me. But I can argue from the character of God. That's our hope. Church, that's the way, the pathway to God. The only way to God. God, I'm sorry. And I appeal to you as a merciful judge. God, I come to you and I appeal to you on the basis of mercy and love. To the slowness of your anger. To your covenant promises. We can always argue. God, because of who you are. God, because of your character. I can appeal. 
Church, to be honest with you, I can look at my own heart, and to be honest, I have found nothing good there. Nothing to mitigate my sins against God. And so I come not by my own works, not by my obedience, not by my observations of the disciplines, but simply by the character, by the grace of God and God alone. There's beauty in that message, folks. There's a power in the gospel message of a gracious father who leans over his son and despite his filth, welcomes him back into open arms. And that's exactly what David does in Psalm 51 is the path into the father's embrace. Lord, I'm sorry. God, I confess. Jesus, I apologize for the way I am, for the things that I've done. And what's fascinating about David's prayer, his poem of confession, found in verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And it's not that David minimizes the sin against Bathsheba, the one who, to whom he commits adultery, or Uriah, her husband. He has sinned against both of them, but rather David even knows, uh, knows even his adultery and his murder affects not only and simply just the horizontal, those human relationships, but it also affects the vertical. It's no wonder that in the New Testament, and actually in the Old and New Testament, the commands are given to the people of God to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus says, and the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. And David knows that in his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, really in essence, he's committed a sin against God. Whether it's an offense against a neighbor or a failure or spiritual obligations towards God is because uh, it's sin, because God is good and God is holy and we are not. And so David says here, against you and you only have I sinned. Rembrandt has another painting called The Three Crosses. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. If you were to look at Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses, your attention would be drawn first to the center. It's the most brightly lit of the painting on which uh, Jesus died. And then as you would look at the crowd gathered around the foot of that cross, you'd be impressed by the uh, ver various facial expressions and actions of the people involved in the awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. But when you scan the picture your eyes would drift to the edge of the painting in the darkness and catch sight of another figure, almost hidden in the shadows. Art critics say that this is a representation of Rembrandt himself, for he recognized by his own sins he helped nail Jesus to the cross. Rembrandt wasn't there. 
it would be nearly 1,500 years later that Rembrandt would draw this, and yet he saw himself as one of those figures who, who nailed Jesus to the cross. And you could hear the, the penitent prayer of David, Lord, against you, and you only have I sinned. God, all the wrongs that I have done against my neighbor, I have committed against you. For Rembrandt himself, he recognized that, that by his sins, he nailed, helped nail Jesus to that cross. And not only does David not hide his sin, not only does he not minimize his sin, he begs God for a deep work of grace to cleanse him from the stain of sin. He wants God to wash him from the inside out. David knows he needs forgiveness, but he, he needs more than that. He also needs inner cleansing and renewal and restoration. And the next six verses are exactly that. He says, God, renew me. God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He asked for renewed hope, a new hope, a renewed sense of joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. We need to regain the joy of our salvation or God's salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation in verse 12. We need to know that our sins are forgiven. David writes, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He asks for a new heart, clean, uh, create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. He asks for God's presence, take not your spirits away from me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Church, why the practice of confession? The disciplines are not something that we pile on top of everything else. The way the disciplines work, it's not, I've got to do my errands, got to feed my kids, and then I do the disciplines. It's not just something that we add, but these are, the disciplines are a way of approaching everything else that keeps us from being overwhelmed or veering off course. They offer a way out of the weary, cluttered, scattered lives so many of us are living. And that's why confession is such an integral part of the Christian life. Confession is a good thing. It does the body good. Confession has a way of lightening the load. Confession has a way of taking away the guilt of our sin. Confession has a way of bringing us back to spiritual health. Confession has a way of keeping us from returning to the same sin over and over and over again. Confession has a way of producing fellowship with other believers. But confession doesn't just bring forgiveness and cleansing, it produces a worship within us. If you remember Isaiah chapter 6, one of the prophets, he sees how he looks up and he sees the heavens and he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember that? You may or may not know Isaiah chapter 6. When you get a chance, please look at it. But again, when, when Isaiah sees, when he sees the holy God, it makes him see himself. And when he sees himself, he comes before God and says, woe is me. And it leads him into worship. Listen to these next few verses. Create in me a clean heart. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. 
O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. Do you see what happens when God comes and cleanses our hearts and changes us? We declare his praises. We give worship. And that's what David does. He comes before God, asks for forgiveness and a cleansing from within, and it causes him to worship. In this story, found in 2 Samuel, and the rebuke of David by Nathan the prophet, Nathan says to David, I'm sorry, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, uh, put away your sin. and he says, you shall not die. I, just, I found this part in 2 Samuel chapter 12 very, very interesting. David talks to Nathan. David has this conversation with Nathan and says, uh, I have sinned against God. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And then in verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It's an interesting conversation that Na David has with Nathan the prophet. And God says to, to David, you've sinned against me. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to take away your life. But the child who is to be born to you shall die. An innocent child, an innocent child who had known no sin, would take upon the sin of David and let David live. The gospel story, if we read through it, because there is a gospel story in every book of the Bible, there is a gospel in that there is good news in Christ the Son. The one that Paul says knew no sin, who became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That God would take away the sin of, take away our sins by the death of his own son, his own beloved son. That Christ in his death would take our place and die in our stead. Church, repentance is not about earning grace, but entering into it.